All right, we are continuing our study of 1 Timothy here on the Listener's Commentary, and in this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And as always, let's make sure we set this in context before we look at the details. And so, Paul here in this paragraph continues to give instructions on proper conduct in the church. That began in chapter 2 with the call to pray for all people, especially for their civil authorities, their civil leaders. Then he stated that he wanted the men in the church to pray in every place without anger or arguing. And then from there, he gave some general instructions to the women, specifically that he expects them to dress modestly, not in flashy displays of wealth and status, and that he wanted them to learn without an overbearing or contentious spirit. And all of that is aimed at making sure that the church at Ephesus is operating the way that it's supposed to operate and that it's correcting some of the errors that have crept into the church. In fact, Paul states at the end of chapter 3, we'll see it in our next recording, but Paul states there in 3.15 that he's writing so that you will know how one should conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So in view of that aim, Paul's giving these instructions to the church. And so now, here in chapter 3, 1 through 7, Paul moves from general instructions to the men and to the women of the church to specifically the church leadership. In the first half of chapter 3, he focuses on the overseers, or maybe the elders, another way to say it. And then in the second half, he focuses on deacons, and he has instructions for both men and women. And before we look at the details of Paul's instructions to the overseers, let me just give a few general comments about overseers and elders in the early church. Here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and following, Paul only uses the description overseers to refer to them. But it's clear from other passages that the word overseers and the word elders refer to the same group of people. For example, Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It's Paul's speech to these very overseers, these very elders from Ephesus. He meets them at Miletus and he gives kind of a parting word or parting encouragement to them at the end of the third missionary journey. And in verse 17, he refers to them as elders. And in verse 28, he says that they're the ones that the Lord deemed to be overseers and uses those two words, elders and overseers, interchangeably. In fact, later in that same speech in Acts 20, he refers to them as shepherds, which is the Greek word for the word pastors. And so, elders, overseers, pastors, these terms are used interchangeably, it seems, in the New Testament to refer to the body of leaders in the church. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 7 does the exact same thing. There he interchanges the word elder and overseer. And so, even though Paul only uses the term overseer in chapter 3, he'll use the term elder in chapter 5, and that's the same group, overseers and elders. Second general observation about elders and overseers in the church is that elders were present in the churches in the New Testament from very early on. The reason I mention that is because some have wrongly asserted that the instructions to elders in 1 Timothy and Titus reflect a later development when the church was more organized and more formalized and all of that. And that's one of the reasons some say, well, you know, it couldn't have been written maybe by Paul because it just shows a higher form of order and all of that. 
But that's a complete misunderstanding. Uh, Paul was appointing elders in his churches that he planted clear back on the first missionary journey. You can see that in Acts 14.23 when he goes and appoints elders. The church in Jerusalem had elders at least as early as Acts 11. Acts 11 verse 30 says the elders, refers to the elders there. So that's cl that's clear back like 20 something years before 1 Timothy and Titus, Acts 11 is. And so this way of organizing the church to care for people by means of elders and overseers is just part of the church from probably right from the start, from very early on. And it likely followed the precedent of the Jews, since that's where the church began, and the Jews had elders in their synagogues. And that's where the idea probably came from. So elders are present from pretty much right from the beginning of the church. And then a third general observation is how the elders function. And that is the elders, you could almost think of them like the grandpas, the papas of the congregation, if you will, whose job it is to give direction and provision and care and oversight to the people. I'll actually put a document in the study hub with some details on elders in the New Testament from a kind of a broad general study on elders in the New Testament. I'll add it there in the hub, and you can check out those details if you're a part of the study hub. Uh, but what we see in the New Testament is that the elders teach. They refute those who contradict. They give leadership and direction. They oversee the distribution of money. They decide how to apply the gospel to difficult situations and set policy for that. They pray over. They equip the saints. And so they, they are the ones that are responsible for the people. And it's really important for us to remember when we say that they are the elders of the church or the, the elders of the congregation. We're thinking of the people. Not so much an organization, a large religious organization, but the people who make up that organization and their job is to provide direction and care and deal with issues to make sure those people are walking in the way of Christ, being formed in the way of Christ. And so in view of that high responsibility, of course, the elders need to be men of deep Christ-like character. And that's what Paul details here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7. So let's look at the details. He begins the chapter by saying, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. The first thing to notice here in verse 1 is the phrase office of overseer. Literally, it's just the word oversight. So whether they thought of it as an office with a title or whatever, that, that, I don't know that they really did. The key thing is the role of oversight, one who functions to give oversight to this body of people, to this group, to care for them. He says somebody who aspires to that, well, it's a fine work that he desires to do. And the word fine literally is kalos. It's good. It's a good thing, right? It's something beautiful, something good, something meaningful. And he aspires to it. That is, he stretches himself towards it. And what he's desiring is not a title, not a position. It's the work. He desires the work. Oversight is a good work. And this word oversight or overseer comes from, uh, really, it's a compound word of two Greek words, episkopeo, which means to watch over, to look over, 
to pay attention over. They're the ones who pay attention over or who walk over the church. That is the body of people, this group of people. This particular word was used in the ancient world of government government officials. It was used of physicians who cared for the sick. And it carries the idea of protective care and looking after the needs of, right? Bringing protective care and guidance to a group of people. Well, that's the work. Uh, that's the role that the overseer aspires to. And that role and work requires a certain kind of character. And that's what Paul is going to focus on then in the rest of chapter 3, 1 through 7. So what kind of person should be entrusted with this work? Well, verse 2 says, an overseer then must be above reproach. And that is the first and almost like a general all-encompassing character trait, above reproach doesn't mean that people won't reproach you, like even Jesus was reproached by people. It means that a person's character is free from uh, demonstrable unchristlike traits. Accusations against them don't stick because their character is so solid and so full of integrity. So that's the first character trait, but it's almost like kind of like the heading. He must be above reproach. You can almost put a colon after that. And then what follows in the rest of the, the verses is sort of like amplifying what Paul has in mind. So he must be above reproach. And then the first thing he has in mind is the husband of one wife, a Christian leader, must exemplify marital fidelity and sexual purity. Literally, this phrase, husband of one wife, is a one-woman man. And we should not overlook the fact that in both Timothy here and as well as in Titus chapter 1, the two places where uh, traits of elders, character traits of elders are mentioned, Paul sets this one at the head of the list. After above reproach or blameless, he he needs to be a one-woman man. And The Greco-Roman culture, just like in our culture, reveled in great sexual looseness. It was not uncommon for a well-to-do man in their world to have a wife to bear him legitimate heirs and an offspring, to have a consort to enjoy at dinner parties, and when he felt like it, to visit the brothel for sheer pleasure. That, that was not an uncommon practice. And elders, overseers, must not be like that. They must be a one-woman man. Also, it's important to notice that this particular phrase emphasizes that the elders, Paul expected them to be male. In fact, when Paul addresses widows, females in chapter 5 who were widows, and refers to the qualities of those who are a widow indeed, he actually uses the phrase a one-man woman because they are women and they needed to be faithful to their, their husbands during their lifetime. And, and so this phrase is gender specific and Paul expects that the elders are going to be male. And that is evidenced here in this phrase, a one woman man. And so the main point is Paul assumes that and just and wants to make sure that elders exemplify marital fidelity and sexual purity. Next, he says that they should be temperate. This word is related to sobriety. Paul's actually going to deal with literal sobriety shortly. Here, this is sort of the idea of all things in moderation. It's a sober approach to life and ministry. Then he says he wants them to be self-controlled. This is the word that means sensible or reasonable. We saw this word in chapter 2 in Paul's instructions to the women about how they needed to dress not in 
flashy displays of wealth and status, right? And that they needed to be sober was translated there discreetly. And we said that's not really the best translation. It's, it's level-headed. It's reasonable. It's sensible, not hot-headed. And so when you put temperate and self-controlled together for the elders here, it paints a picture of a person whose life is under control. It's disciplined generally and morally. He's dependable. He's trustworthy, not rash and unpredictable, prone to excess and all of that. He's temperate. He's self-controlled. Also, he's supposed to be respectable. This word is kosmion. Again, that word was used of the women in chapter 2 for the way they're supposed to dress. They're supposed to present themselves in an honorable, respectable sort of way. And, and here we see it with the elders. So Paul's not expecting anything of the ladies there in chapter 2 that he's not also expecting of uh, the male leaders here in chapter 3. It has to do with conducting himself in an orderly, well-mannered, honorable sort of way. He needs to be that kind of person. He's also supposed to be hospitable. This word literally is a compound word that means stranger lover. But in the Greco-Roman world, hotels uh, were infrequent, inns were infrequent. They were often actually dangerous. Typically, they also doubled as like a brothel or a, a saloon. They were morally suspect. And so, the word hospitable came to refer to somebody who hosted people in their home. And it actually was a well-established cultural value outside of even the Christian world. Just in the broader Greco-Roman world, this was a value to host people in your home. And it became a widespread and important value among the early Christians. If a fellow Christian, say, came to town, the good and right thing to do was to put them up in your home. And if there were other ways you could show practical care for people, visitors or people in town or people with needs, right, then you would do that and you were hospitable. So the elders need to model this key trait. Not only that, the next thing that Paul lists is skillful in teaching. Now, that translation is just a bit of an over-translation. Literally, it is able to teach. That is, they need to be able to communicate the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles and, and the, the scriptures to the rest of the church. They need to bring all that to them. And Paul will actually say in his instructions to Titus about elders that they need to learn and know the truth, be able to communicate it, and correct those who teach wrongly. And that's the idea, that they, they need to be able to teach the truth and correct those who teach it wrongly. Then what Paul does, beginning in verse 3, is he makes a just a slight shift and begins to list off things that the overseers should not be. And so verse 3 says, not overindulging in wine. And that word is only used here and in Titus 1 in the New Testament. It literally is about not about the wine, not a heavy drinker, not prone to drunkenness. It's the, the idea of not hanging out at the wine table or by the beer cooler. That's the idea, where you're just going to be drinking one after another. Um, the next phrase is not a bully, but gentle. The word bully refers to one who uses force to get what he wants. That's the idea of that word. Not somebody who uses force and, you know, uses harshness and uses, you know, on the overbearing spirit to get whatever he wants, but instead he's gentle. And the word gentle refers to being forbearing, 
gracious. Uh, refers to a person who can make allowances when appropriate. So you put those two words together, bully and gentle, you put them together and it indicates a person who's not quick-tempered, who's not domineering, not heavy-handed, but he's willing to work with others and he's cooperative and he's willing to listen and, and make compromises where needed. That's the idea. So an elder needs to be like that. Next, he follows that up with sort of a similar a word when he says not contentious. And this word means to be peaceable rather than one who fights and argues and wars, right? He bickers with people and he's, he's quarrelsome. He's not like that. He's not contentious. He's also free from the love of money. As Paul famously will say in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And so the elders must lead by example and be free from such a vice. Then, in the next two verses, Paul turns to a helpful testing ground for elders and overseers. And that testing ground is the household. So he says in verse, verses 4 and 5, he says, He, that is the overseer, must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so we see the household here being set up as really kind of a, a proving ground, a testing ground, at least a, a place to begin to understand if this man has the character and the wherewithal to effectively oversee a group of people. And the reason for that was because the household in the ancient world was more than just mom, dad, and the kids. The household included extended family. The household included clients and some employees and maybe even some servants, as well as the children. There was actually quite a bit to manage in a Greco-Roman household. And because of that, it had long been accepted that the family was like a microcosm of society and that a leader first needed to demonstrate his leadership skills in the home. And it was also assumed that good leaders could restrain themselves and act for the common good. And that would show up in managing the 20, 30, 40, or 50 people under his care in his household. And that's why Paul establishes it here. So he needs to be one that manages, that oversees, supervises, and leads, and protects, and does what's good and beneficial. That's the idea of the, the word well. Like if he's going to manage his household well, he manages it in a good sort of way, kalos, uh, for the good of everybody with their best interest at heart. That includes here keeping his own children under control. Uh, and again, literally, it's just having his children in subjection. That is, they're to be arranged under his leadership. Uh, they're to show him the proper respect and proper honor due to his position as the head of the household, the, the father of the household. This was, a, again, a well-established value in the Greco-Roman world. But for Paul, it actually derived from the Ten Commandments. Uh, honor your father and mother. One of the Ten Commandments, and for Paul, and that's the proper thing to do. And so a leader needs to be the kind of person who manages his own household in such a good sort of way that he has his, uh, his children show him honor and show him respect that's due to his position. And since the church viewed itself as a family, the household of God, as Paul will say in, in verse 15, uh, the kind of character and skills needed to lead a household would show if a person was able to lead and care for God's household, 
which is the new family of Jesus. And so it's set up as the testing ground for that here. And then in verse 6, he says, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. Uh, That is, the overseer, the elder, needs time to mature and to age and to develop the appropriate humility and circumspection and even knowledge and skills uh, in the faith to uh, lead the church well. Uh, A quest for power and the arrogance that sometimes goes with it um, leads to the same failure that the devil himself made and thus incurs the same condemnation. And so wisdom would dictate that you don't entrust such a role until somebody has some time to be seasoned in the faith, seasoned in the scriptures, to have matured into Christ-like character. That's the idea. And then he gives one last kind of evaluatory mark for elders in verse 7. He says, and he must have a good reputation with those outside, that is those outside the church, so that he will not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Um, That is, he's supposed to have a good witness. Good reputation literally is good witness. People are supposed to speak well of him. Uh, He has good standing. Uh, Those outside of the church who know him, can testify to his character, even if they don't agree with his beliefs, that he is, he's got good character, he's got good standing, so that he won't fall into disgrace, that is dishonor, and particularly the kind of disgrace that would dishonor the entire church and uh, tear down its honor and its witness uh, to the people in town. So he must not be the kind of person who'll do that. And then he mentions, once again, the snare of the devil. And so in verse 6, he mentioned the condemnation incurred by the devil. And here he mentions the snare of the devil. This is actually seems to be a particular concern of Paul in this letter. He's already mentioned in the previous paragraph how Eve, by her own admission, was deceived by the devil. Here he warns elders of the danger of the snare of the devil and the condemnation of the devil. In chapter 5, he'll mention some widows who pledged to live the rest of their life being supported by the church and remained single, but then they fell victim to various temptations and fleshly desires, and he says they followed the devil. And so it seems to be a particular concern of Paul, at least the way he states it here, is he wants them to make sure that they're not falling prey to the devil's lies and temptations and wiles, and thus bringing dishonor on the church. Now, before we leave this section about the elders, let me just offer this reflection, and it's this. This section reminds us that the most important thing in choosing Christian leaders or appointing Christian leaders is their character, not their business acumen, uh, not their wealth or their status, not their prestige or anything like that. It is their well-established Christian character. And the point of all these character traits in verses 1 through 7 is not a checklist per se. It's not like, okay, they meet all of these. It's not really a checklist per se, but it's to paint a picture of a person who models discipleship to Jesus in very tangible, down-to-earth ways. They're the kind of person who really says, okay, if I become like them, I would be becoming more like Jesus. That's the idea. And so a Christian leader is to be a model 
model of Christ-like character, a model of discipleship to Jesus. And this is consistent throughout the New Testament. We'll see the same thing in Titus when Paul gives instructions about elders there. And you see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where when Peter gives his description of how elders should shepherd the flock, it underscores their character. He reminds us there that elders should shepherd the flock, not by lording it over them with an iron fist, but by being an example of godliness. And he urges them to do it willingly and eagerly as examples of Christ-like living. And so that's the consistent portrait painted in the New Testament that Christian leaders, elders and overseers, must be a man with deep Christ-like character. And so in the church, that's the kind of people we should uh, look for, um, for to be elders. That's the kind of person who should naturally uh, present themselves. They're, they're already serving and doing the work, and they have the character. Of the, they, they, they are substantially like Jesus in the character of their life and the mission of their life, and it's evident and it's obvious to all. Those are the kind of people that Paul has painted a picture of here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that is only made possible by the generosity of people like you, people who uh, give to this ministry through signing up for the Study Hub or give to this ministry through clicking the Give button at listenerscommentary.com. Uh, people who believe in the work that this ministry is doing. And so thanks a ton to those of you who support this ministry by your prayers and your financial gifts. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com and either signing up for the Study Hub or clicking the Give button. And it'll take you to a page where you can put in a dollar amount, click a box to say Make This Monthly. All recurring donors, whether through signing up for the Study Hub or through the Give button, all monthly donors get access to the Study Hub, which includes some bonus material, maps, charts, and things like that to help you dig in and understand the scriptures more, as well as my online courses are included there in the Study Hub as well. So in advance, let me just say thanks a ton for your support.